0: Welcome to the market emotion podcast for financial advisors presented by FMG suite. Listen to interviews with the movers, shakers, geniuses, and innovators of the financial advisory world, visit FMG suite.com. Discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory. And now without further delay, the market emotion podcast for financial advisors. Hi everybody. Mike Woods here. One of the founding members of FMG suite. Welcome to the Market in Motion Podcast for Financial Advisors presented by FMG Suite. Today I'm speaking with Andrea McRue, USA Financial's Chief Legal and Compliance Officer. We talk a lot about regulatory stuff on today's podcast, so I suggest you turn the volume up. First, we take a deep dive in the SEC's modernized marketing rule for financial advisors. Andrea helps put this new rule in perspective and gives some insights into what she believes the firms will start adopting the rule that allows for advisors to put testimonials and endorsements on their websites. Next, we flip over to regulation best interest. BDs have given a lot of definition to RegBuy over the past year, which has helped reps who are on the front lines with regulators. It's a fast move in 30 minutes. Andrea has some detailed understanding of the industry and offers a number of insights throughout the half hour. So I hope you enjoy the podcast, spread the word. So Andrea, it's great to have you on the podcast today.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really thrilled to be here.
0: Great. Well, before we dive into uh, some of the meatier stuff on compliance, can you give us a quick intro about yourself, an idea of uh, the range and scope of what you do at USA Financial?
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to. Um, As you mentioned in your intro, I'm USA Financial's Chief Legal Officer and Chief Compliance Officer. And I think like most people in our industry, at least those I've talked to, I sort of fell into a career in financial services and compliance. And it's shocking to me that of all the people I've talked to, almost nobody um, has said, you know, yeah, I I started out on my path wanting to be in the financial services industry. And we all kind of just sort of happened to end up here, which is a whole nother story and conversation that we need to change. Um, But I was one of those people and it was just kind of a happy accident. I guess you could say that I ended up where I am today. And wearing the chief legal officer hat and the chief compliance officer hat means that my obligations at USA Financial are very broad and varied in what I do from the, you know, day to day. So my day can encompass everything from filing articles of incorporation for an entity that we're creating or you know, handling a FINRA or SEC request and literally everything in between. So um, it, it definitely keeps things interesting. It's not boring. There's a lot to do. Um, But I think more than anything, I really view my role as a partner and a protector. So regardless of which hat I'm wearing, um, my goal is to partner with different teams, different people to sort of advance the goals and the missions of that group. And so, you know, internally as chief legal officer, I partner with the other execs here at USA Financial, and I have some really talented and impressive teammates, truly. So working with that group is really great in terms of moving our company forward. You know, And then I've in, in my role as the chief compliance officer, I place an intense amount of focus and kind of always have. And I ask my team to place and devote an intense amount of focus as well to partnering with advisors and letting them see that compliance done right is your partner and a trusted ally. And of course, looking out for investors and making sure that our firm is implementing the policies and procedures necessary to protect them and ensure that their needs are being met. So all around, you know, I just try to, to view myself as a liaison for these different groups and be helpful and do things that help advance their goals.
0: Boy, you know, there's so much, uh, so much truth to that. Being, being a partner and a protector. I, I know you probably saw the news, uh, which crossed just in a, a, a few days ago about Robinhood. I did. Robin Hood had to pay a seventy million dollar fine.
1: Yes. Uh, from yes. Now,
0: now, now, you look at Robin Hood and you say, well, could they have been protected against that? I'm, I'm not sure how because they were doing so many things that were so cutting edge. But, boy. Um, $70 million worth of protection, That uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, it, yeah. that's a pretty hefty, hefty fine.
1: Yeah, I was, you know, Robin Hood, give me half of that and I will absolutely <laughs> do whatever I can, you know, to help. Because I do think, you know, I think what we try to tell our advisors is that um, my goal is to help you achieve your goals. And there's usually a way to do that. That is also compliant. Um, we may need to be creative. We may need to look at everything and see how you're doing what you're doing in your business what you want to achieve we'll look at the rules and we can usually come up with something and i think you can still be cutting edge and you can still do some of the things you want to do but you do have to go about it in a way that's helpful and compliant and i think um, it also helps you have to have a culture where that is accepted and that's what you're going to live by, and these are your standards, and you're not going to go below them. And um, thankfully, here we have that standard. And when you're surrounded by people where you can openly say, you know, this is a threat to our mission, we can't, we cannot do this. What else can we do? And then it's it's received well, and it's processed, and then implemented. That's what I really think you you need to have in order to avoid things like that.
0: Boy, it is so true to have that in the culture and in the have it in the fabric of the organization, because as I was explaining to people yesterday, Robin Hood simply can't go back to Fender and say sorry. We'll try harder next time. Nope.
1: Yeah, that's not acceptable.
0: (laughs) That's not not okay. They've got to come up with a whole plan. They've got more like a a, more of a compliance business plan about what Mm -hmm. they're going to do, how they're going to change, how they're going to approach it, how they're going to measure it. Um, It is a uh, it's it, 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 it. So it clearly wasn't quite in the fabric of what Robinhood had. But now this may change all that.
1: Yes. And I, you know, I think there's a part of my compliance heart That always just sort of um, breaks for any entity because, I mean, in this industry, there's so many rules. There's so many things. And Robinhood had a lot of things playing on them that, you know, some of us are are the other firms we don't have. You know, like they had so many public, like, you know, people committing suicide and these awful, awful things that really, you know, paint the whole situation in a different light. Um, But I think that, you know, you just really have to embrace it. And you have to f- figure out what your core values are, and you can be compliant with those things. It, it might—you have to be a little creative sometimes, and you have to work really hard at it. But I definitely think there's always a way to stay on the compliant side of that line.
0: Yeah, there is, and it's uh, like you said—if it, it becomes part of your culture, part of your fabric, it's—it's—it's um, it's, it's more of just the way you're doing business. So right. very true. Right. All right, Andrea. Let's talk about uh, let's let's start and talk about a couple of regulatory changes before we get into some more firm specific, and then some stuff sure. that you're doing. Um, yeah. Let's start off with you know the the hot cake of the year. Really, it's the uh, the SEC modernized modern. It's the SEC modernized marketing rule for investment advisors. And, right. You know, I always say at first. You know, it's great that the SEC is updating the forty year old rule. It shows that the regulators are moving in the right direction. Um, but it's, uh, it was, it was quite a, um, there was quite a lot there. So I wanted to get your yeah. perspective on the new rule and give us, uh, give us your thoughts about industry adoption.
1: Yeah. I mean, talk about a rule. That was a lot of pages, um, to yeah 500, <laughs>
0: 500 pages. Yeah. It was hefty.
1: Yeah. So there was a lot of material and it's, it's super funny. Cause, um, You know we've had some questions and our advisors are great and and they're pretty patient with with these sort of things but we've had some questions about you know what when can we use it what do we i'm like we gotta we gotta slow this down here because um it's not also when the sec writes these rules you've seen them you know they're not a bullet point of do this do this this was a narrative basically of, of 400 pages that yeah you know, talking about all the comment letters, which actually do play into you know, how they perceive things and, and can give you some compliance guideposts to tell you, well, okay, if we're going to do it, this is what they've said based on these comments. So we, we want to do it this way rather than this way. So all of it really is important to read and digest, but it takes a long time to digest. And, you know, there are so many facets of this rule that I think people may not have realized because, of course, the big hot topic in it was the testimonials. That's the right. one, you know. That's the thing. You, that's what you hear about. And I, you know, I'll touch on that a little bit more. But there's so much more to it than that. You know, there's performance reporting issues, and um, there's issues related to, you know, how you work with lead generation companies and what that entails. And you know, is that a testimony? Is it an endorsement? Like, so there's a lot that goes into it that firms have had to kind of step back analyze their relationships, analyze their contracts, you know, think about how they want to allow testimonials, look at performance advertising that they review, approve, put out there. Um, There's a lot to it. So I think that what's pretty telling about that is the distance between the effective date and the compliance date. That is a long time. I mean, we're out into end of next year before this thing has to be actually complied with. And so I think that speaks volumes to how much work needs to be done and how big of a rule it is. And like you said, I mean, the thing hadn't changed in forever. And so um, you gotta, you gotta process that too, because we've been working with the same framework for such a long time, but I I do think it's good that they made the change because um, this industry people in this industry. We reinvent ourselves regularly because there is so much evolution in what we work with. I, I, I'll never forget one of my mentors um, and an incredible, just an incredible legend of a securities attorney. And he was one of my professors in law school, um, Hugh Makins of Warner Norcross and Judd. He told me when I first started that it takes about 10 years to become proficient and then they change it all on you. Um, <laughs> and that's very true. They're, you know, My experience has been now Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, Except for this. This was the one rule where this was the constant. This hasn't changed. You know, this is what we know. Um, And so I think that it it needed the updating, though, because nothing I think in the past 40, 50, 60 years has changed more than how we communicate with each other. And so um, being able to have a rule that's reflective of you know society and the technology capabilities that's really only going to help and it's going to let our industry stay in touch with the times um, and communicate in the way that people want to be communicated with
0: right i I've, I've always said that you know it's a um, it, it's a it's a it's an odd world where you can find more about a plumber than you can somebody you're going to give yes. your life savings to Yes. but but at the same time it's just not that easy
1: no it's just, it's not.
0: It's just not that easy a plumber is going right. to do a limited scope of a job Whereas this, this, this rule now um, is it, – it, and, and, Andrew, I just wanted to get your take on it. The, the, my understanding is that the firms can't really pick and choose which parts of the rule yeah. they want to do. They have to – they're either in or they're out.
1: You're all or nothing, yeah, all or nothing. And that's, I think, an additional reason why you haven't seen anyone rushing to adopt it because it's robust, there's a lot in there. And you can't say, well, you know, this month we're gonna choose from here forward to be in compliance with the testimonial rule because that part would be pretty easy. Um, you know, We're gonna do that. We'll worry about the rest of the stuff later, can't do that. So um, you either have to have all of your testimonial, all of your endorsement, all of your performance advertising, all of those things have to be ready to go when you pull that trigger. So I think everybody's kind of just making sure
0: that sure, they know yeah. what they
1: want to do, that they have what they want to do. You know, and I think there is a bit of a mindset where you want to be an early adopter because there's things in it that really will benefit financial advisors. You know, I, I think that the testimonial rule Change is really good for many reasons, because I think that's one thing that I've I've always heard investment advisors um, complain about. And they're right. You know, you, they can't have anybody give any sort of indication of how it was to work with them. And what is that about? I mean, you, you these are the people, like you said, you're trusting with your life savings. Um, it's like I when I try when I need a new doctor I go to somebody and say Hey who do you see Do you like them Do you not like them What was your experience And it's because these things are important and so um, and we've become a society where everybody's opinion is absolutely important We need to know what other people think There's a whole profession right. of influencer exactly. right. Right? right Like you, yeah. I influence you to like these things or go to these places So. Ignoring the fact that you know somebody's not going to want to ask or read about another person's experience is short sighted because they do, and it's always been a hindrance because our advisors will get um, calls from potential clients and they'll say, Okay, well, who can I talk to, um, to know more about you? and they, they're like, um, ooh, ooh, no one, ooh, you can't uh, really, and then that's weird, so right. you know, and then. They'll call me and they're like, well, what? you know, how do I give them like, well, you can have them talk to people, but you have to choose the people based on, you know, benign factors like the same zip code or the same birth month or the same, you know, things that are not related to performance or experience or whatever. But, you know, that's so arbitrary. So I think this helps us get to some sort of meaningful experience for the client, which I'm really happy about um, because I think that needs to happen. But yeah, you cannot do, you can't pick and choose. You got to be ready to roll with all of it.
0: Yeah. As, as, uh, as, as, as I've told people too, I said, you know, uh, it, it, this is a, the, there's so much interpretation here. Uh, it makes you long for the days of when FINRA introduced broker check. That was yeah. very clear. Yeah. That was very clear. Dot the, you know, dot, dot the I across the T. I got it. I need it yep. on every, on every page of my website. Perfect. Got it. Okay. Oh,
1: yeah. Yeah, simpler. absolutely. Simpler yeah. times. It really
0: simpler times is right it really
1: was and i feel like lately to being in compliance there has been a bit of regulatory whiplash um you know partly because of our political climate and partly because of you know th- this push which i'm fully on board with um you know the, the more protectionary for clients i'm absolutely on board with it um because there are bad actors but i think 99.9 percent of this industry um, at least the advisors I know, they are trying to do it right and they want to sure. do it right. right. And, you know, it ne- it would never cross their mind to not do something correctly. So, you know, so th- our industry gets a bit of a bad rap um, because it's, you know, you're talking large amounts of money and the, the, the wrongdoers. It, it's public and it's obvious and you know, it's salacious. So you get to hear about all of that. But most of them are doing the right thing. Um, and right. so, exactly. you know, from, from that perspective, I support any changes that we make, because, you know, I look at it, and I'm like, you know, anything we can do to move the industry forward and make it easier for clients to do business with their advisors, I'm all for.
0: Boy, it, it, it's true. It's true. And the um, um, making it a little harder Kind of helps keep the riffraff out um yeah. which is which is always good but boy what you touched on there true is so true we went through the department of labor changes then we went through regulation best interest now we have mm-hmm. this so there has been a lot of change but so before we move on i, I want to I, before we move on from kind of this national scope i also wanted to touch on regulation best interest you know i yeah. you know i i was i was it passed last year, about this time, uh, yep. I think it actually was, uh, you know, within the last couple of weeks and uh, uh, many people were expecting an extension. It didn't happen, even though COVID was going on. But I've truly been amazed about how broker dealers have put so much structure to regulation best interest. Yeah. Uh, it, when it came out, there were many vague aspects about when you would deliver different forms and at what time and how you would. A, a approach different, uh, different aspects of the rule. But b- boy, you know, I, am I'm, I'm, a, I'm registered with a broker dealer in Florida and I went through their continuing ed this year and it was extremely thorough. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, it was, it, it, it went from kind of a, an amorphous, uh, set of instructions to I've got a playbook. I know exactly what to do where. So what my question to you is, what do you think is next for it? Do you see the regulators revising the rule or do you see them making smaller adjustments under the new administration?
1: Yeah. And you're right. It's timely. Yesterday was the one year anniversary. So so we've been fully entrenched in this for a year now, um, almost to the day. And, you know, I think in many ways, um, Reg BI was a relief for firms. And I don't want to push that on other firms if it wasn't a relief for them. But in many ways for us, I'll say it was a relief because um, like other firms, we had put so much money and time into preparing for fiduciary rule 2.0. So, you know, and that in all my time of doing this, I have not seen a more expansive or harder to digest rule than that rule. rabbit holes, unintended consequences. You go down one path and you're in deep. And then like, did we even contemplate this? Can this even be done? I mean, those are the questions that you're asking. And so that rule was very unworkable in the way. And I think because of the the difficulty in complying with it and even doing the things that were expected would have been um, more of a harm to investors probably than it was a help, um, to be quite honest. So you know, but everybody put a lot of time into that. And that was a drama for the ages. And so after putting all of the money and time into that infrastructure and the policies and the technologies, when Reg BI came along, at, at least you felt like you could somewhat shift some of those efforts right. over right. to, and that's what we did. You know, we, when we, the things we put in place in anticipation of the fiduciary rule, a lot of them we kept in place because we figured something's going to come down the line. Um, and then we don't want to pull something out or requirement out only to make people have to do it again. So let's stick with it. Let's put it out there. And so, in that way I think Reg BI coming along was sort of good and it also, um, made it a little bit easier to comply with. But I do think that that rule is right for legislative picking because, you know, again, Political climate—it doesn't matter what side you're on. You know, you're either really far, to, like to one dis- one idea or one opinion or the other. And so, I think it's to be expected that there'll likely be some sort of picking mm-hmm. at this rule because there was that whole camp that didn't think it went far enough. Right. Um, then there's the camp that's like, this is too far. We don't need this. And you know, I think I'm I'm somewhere in the middle, um, or maybe don't even have a fully formed opinion on that yet because. I was just happy that we inched a little bit closer to some sort of homogenized rules. So toggling back and forth between rule standards is so hard. And, you know, it's not how advisors work in their day to day business. So, you know, we don't they don't sit with a client and say, well, you're, I'm going to sell you a variable annuity. So let me put my suitability hat on. And then <laughs> now I'm going to talk to you about a managed portfolio. So now I'm going to put my fiduciary hat on. That's ridiculous. They don't do that. You know, I think the majority of clients and or advisors and the advisors here at USA, it's always been the best interest standard. You know, what's best for this person? That's what I'm going to do. Um, and so that's how we review you know for suitability and best interest we've always done it that way is kind of based on that standard but i do think that we'll see some changes from a legislative perspective potentially um and you know the sec is just starting to find its groove and examining how firms have implemented this thanks to the pandemic you know there wasn't a whole lot right, right. that they did at that point point. and so there i've heard from other you know ccos that you know, the, the SEC has come in and there's been some questions about it now. So whether we've done a good job implementing it or not, or whether there's more work to be done as an industry, I think remains to be seen. And sure. those examination findings might give us a better idea as to how far the rule really went in terms of application and implement, implementation um, and maybe serve as a litmus test for what kind of changes we might see coming legislatively.
0: Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I think the um, you know, and some, you know, as you mentioned, uh, uh, there was a lot of interpretation. You had some states that felt it wasn't far enough, and they yep. imposed a a, a a stricter rule. And right. so, boy, uh, talk, you know, uh, you, you're 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 juggling chainsaws, and somebody throws a knife at you. Uh, well, so absolutely. it's hard for the reps to keep up with that.
1: Well, and blindfolded, right? Because right. there's even there's even things in the rule where it's like, what's a fiduciary? Well, we're not going to tell you. We're not going to define that. We're not going to tell you what it is. You know, it's like uh, it's like the old justices comment about pornography. I know it when I see it. So you're like, is this a fiduciary? I don't know. I know it when I see it. I am or I'm not. I don't know. So, you know, those types of things are kind of hard. I think by now we all probably understand what that that term encompasses, what's expected of us. And by and large, I think the majority of people really do adhere to that standard, um, because they become, I think that for the advisors who are doing it right, these clients almost become like an extended family. They, you know, and they, they want to do what's best for them and they, they take a personal interest in their success. And so when that happens, all it solves itself, you know, they, they really are, are looking out for them.
0: Right. I, I, I agree with you a hundred percent, you know, it's, it was, uh, when you, even that notion of doing what's in the best interest of your client—you uh, know—many of the financial advisors I, I, I spoke to about that rule when it was implemented, they kind of craned their head a little bit and go, "Well, that's what we always have done." Yes, uh, exactly. So, it, so it's not—it was—you know—it was almost it, the, the whole notion of that. P- some people weren't doing things in the best interest was really a foreign, foreign idea.
1: Yeah, I think it's more of a um, like a broker-dealer hammer. Um, yeah. you know, um, because it then changes the way and the extent to which we have to look at, you know, transactions that come and land on our desk for approval. Um, it changes sort of the standard we will be held to so that if, if there's any errors in there, you know, it's easier to get us on those errors. So I think the impact will be felt more at the firm level, um, than at the advisor level, because absolutely, they've always been looking out for the best interest, the good ones.
0: Gotcha. All right, so let's switch gears now, let's just take a uh, let's take a few minutes because I want to talk about your the compliance work you do at USA Financial. you know, you, you talked a little bit about. You said it, it's more of a it's it's a you a partner and a protector, which I think is a, a great way to push it. When uh, when I when I watched some of the read some of your site and watched some of the videos on the the, the website, you talk about the top down approach to compliance at USA yeah. Financial. So can you can you touch into that just to give us an idea how that works?
1: Yeah, I yeah I think um, partnership. The partnership mentality has kind of always been my compliance approach because you know it just working together is something that I've always done. I, you know, I was a collegiate swimmer and I've always been on teams my entire life. So to me, it's foreign to not collaborate. It's foreign to not try to work together to achieve a common goal. That's kind of what's ingrained in me. So to me, this is just another team. You know, our advisors are my team and, you know, my, my, our, you know, our USA financial employees are my team. And so we got to look out for each other and we have to collaborate with each other and work together to achieve our goals. And, you know, that kind of mentality is really easier to implement when you have the support of your higher ups, you know, so I've been really fortunate that our ownership, um, respects that, that I have a seat at the table as compliance and that, you know, it's not just dismissed as, you know, the, the old business prevention department that I hear. So (laughs) Um, so, if I had a dime for every time um, that one was thrown out, I, you know, I wouldn't probably have to be working anymore. You know, it's frequent. So, um, but it's like, it's not that, you know, compliance needs to be Um, an integral part of the corporate framework because everything we do in this industry touches on compliance. And we tell that to every department in here too, is compliance starts and ends with you as well. So, you know, if you're talking to an advisor and you hear something that compliance should know about because it's like a concern for the advisor or or there's something about an investor that tell us, you know, everybody has a a role in this. And so you kind of have to consider yourself as your own little CCO. And conduct yourself that way and, you know, communicate that. And compliance doesn't have to be adversarial. And we're really on the same side. We're trying to do what's right for the investor. But, you know, that relationship has to be built on trust and respect. And I get that. So before I can get any of our firm's advisors, you know, to see me as their partner, um, they have to trust and respect that I'm going to respect them in turn. And You know, I I always tell our advisors uh, when they first come on, I'm like, I can promise you that I will respect you. We will not always agree. That does not, but that doesn't mean that I don't respect you and that we can't get along. And if we approach our disagreements as teammates on the Mm -hmm. same page, partners, and we respect each other in our communications, then we will get to a solution works for everybody and i'm positive of that and our relationship will be even stronger so you know for me i think it's our entire company from the top down embracing compliance embracing that um, it can be a benefit to you and embracing that perspective that it's a partnership and we're in this together and i'm going to stand by you next to you Um, If I need to, I will be a shield for you. Those are the types of things that, you know, we really try to embrace so that compliance becomes more than just a necessary evil, it becomes something that really drives the business forward.
0: Right, right. You know, I, I, you know, it's good to disagree. It's, yes it's in those moments that you have those evolutions of what can happen and as i i, I tell people that what that i what as i work with them at fmg suite i say you know you'd much rather answer that question to me than you would a FINRA regulator
1: yes so absolutely.
0: so so practice practice yes. answering <laughs> yes.
1: yeah we always tell our advisors it's like working you know with the nc2a who you know they're they're bloodied and and embroiled lately um which for good reason but you know it's like the nc2a in college sports you know if you find a violation as a university or if you've got a problem it's better to find it yourself and fix it than somebody else coming in and finding it later after the fact and saying you did nothing why did you do nothing so i always tell our advisors you know if something if you're concerned if you just don't know if you're unsure please call me. This is a no judgment zone. We just want to fix it. We want to address it. We want to guide in the right direction. Um, we want to give you the tools you need to be successful because, you know, most financial advisors did not get into this business to worry about compliance. Um, that's not what they chose to do. They did it because they liked their relationships, working with clients, right. you know, helping people, doing the financial aspect of the planning that's what they love. So you do that and you let me do the compliance, but I need you to be able to communicate it to me so that we can prevent problems before they arise. Um, And we're happy to do that. My worst The worst thing that could happen to me would be an advisor would be nervous to tell me something or scared to tell me something. And then it goes unresolved or it's an issue we could have addressed and it didn't get addressed. So um, but in order for that to happen, like I said, they have to respect and trust. And so a big part of what I do is I try to build that because um, we have a great financial advisor base. And so it makes it kind of easy to do my job when we have that type of relationship.
0: Right. Absolutely. Okay. One last question here for the podcast. I, I, yeah. I am told that you have your own podcast called I do. Yeah, I
1: do. Yeah. We've been on a bit of a pandemic hiatus, um, uh-huh. yes, I do. So give me an, give a, a, what
0: inspired you to create it and kind of give us a, what it is about, what inspired you to create it, how I can get it, all that kind of good stuff.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Uh, well, it's available anywhere you get your podcast, So iTunes and Spotify, all of those. Um, But, you know, there were a few inspirations for it. Um, First, I would say it was being viewed myself as a small specialized segment of the financial industry as a woman, you know, sort of a quote unquote outsider to the boys club. Because um, it is a very male-dominated industry, and always it traditionally has been, um, and seeing so many incredible, smart, sophisticated, capable female advisors um, get treated like they knew nothing or they had nothing to offer, and that was frustrating, you know. And I've I've I'd seen it time and time again. And then, you know, the second inspiration that kind of took that sort of um, frustration at seeing that mentality and kind of kicked it into something actionable um, was actually Mark Tibergian, and um, he doesn't even know this because I don't know him personally, Um, but, and I think I maybe made some sort of comment on a LinkedIn post of his and thanked him for it, which he liked, and I was thrilled because I'm like, oh my gosh, you know, Mark Tibergian liked my post, but um, when he was the CEO of Pershing Advisor Solutions, he presented a white paper at a conference, and it was titled Women Are Not a Niche Market, and that was really powerful because when someone as influential, impactful, powerful as him recognizes and calls out your group and says, we need to stop segmenting this group. We need to stop treating them as if they're all the same. Um, And these antiquated and likely always had been incorrect stereotypes about what women in this industry needed. um, It was really inspirational and validating. And so then it made me want to do my part, even if it was a super small part, because I by no means have any of the reach or the influence or the impact of Mark Tversian. But um, it's so powerful. And I think it was a great testament to how when somebody with a platform steps up and can and can promote those types of things and can speak out for the people who may not have a voice to speak out the ripples, who knows where it can go, you know? So I think that was a really powerful lesson for me and made me want to do something. And then, you know, third, but certainly not least, um, I wanted to try to inspire change for female investors. So, you know, Merrill Lynch did a fantastic report that was titled women and financial wellness beyond the bottom line. And I think it's an, it's a report that all advisors should look at and should read. Um, male advisors, female advisors, everybody, because, you know, women were estimated in 2020, so last year, to cross the line of controlling $22 trillion of wealth in the United States. Yet in there, in the, in the report, the statistics cites that 70% of women said that our industry caters only to men. Mm. And that's not good. That's sad. Um, that is sad. Because, that's going to keep people from actually wanting to come see a financial advisor and they need to, you know, and women are more likely to not approach because they don't want to feel stupid. They don't want to be made to feel like they don't know what they're doing. Um, And they have a little bit less sometimes of that bravado when it comes to financial planning. And so I think our industry, we need to do a much better job of servicing these clients. And that's only a benefit for advisors too. If you can find a way to make these women investors feel comfortable and make them want to work with you, um, that's a benefit to you as well. And, you know, women are great referrers. We love to talk and we love to tell each other, like, hey, this person, this is the person you need to talk to. So I think everybody stands to benefit from that. And it just, you know, it really showed me even some of the subconscious biases that we have as an industry, like something as simple as retirement calculators. Um, Our industry loves them. We use them all the time. Most of them, I don't know if any of them allow for planned or unplanned breaks in the workplace. So a lot of women are the, women are the ones that a lot of times take those breaks, not always, but a lot of the time statistically um, for caring for children or aging family members. And, you know, you can't really plan out for them if you can't take into account what is that five year or six year or 10 year break due to my finances. Um, So I think I could go on and on about all of that, but I think, if we don't start recognizing these things and changing them, then I think we're doing a disservice to our industry and to these investors. And it you know, it was kind of funny not to go on about it too much, but um, in the year 2019, I received feedback from the podcast that, you know, women aren't fit for this industry. They're oh. great for paying bills. And if I didn't have a woman to pay my bills and my electricity wouldn't be on. But when it comes to understanding financial aspects, it's just not what they're, Built or suited to do. Just 2019. So I, you know, and it's super funny. So I'm like, well, if that's sort of meant to make me feel dissuaded, I'm like, wrong. I feel even more empowered to say, okay, we got to change this conversation. And here, let me show you this, this woman who's the chief investment officer of a large money manager. And let me shine a spotlight on this woman who's a CEO of a company that's taking our industry by storm. So that's really important to me is to highlight these incredible women in our industry and also make it a more of a conversation topic so that we can better service female investors as well.
0: Golly. Yeah, that's, uh, uh it is um sometimes you just have to kind of sit back and kind of go hmm, golly darn it. uh yeah. i just don't get it you know I, well one of the um you know one of the things that always sticks out with me in some of the reports that i read about uh, the difference between women and uh, men investors is women tend to be more patient they tend to yes. have a better uh, they tend to you know give things a little more time and uh you know you look at that and you go okay well how could i how could I embrace that aspect and bring it If as a man understand that a little more because yeah. women over time tend to do better. And it's probably has to do with that patience. And, uh, you know, you read all the studies about people, you know, that are too quick to jump in and out of the financial markets. And, yeah. you know, it, it starts to all kind of come together in a grand mosaic. And, um, uh, but then you get some comments like you do that, uh, <laughs> it just, just kind of go, huh? Okay. Well, there's one in every crowd.
1: There is. And, you know, and I've I've also received so much support and we have so many advisors who, um, you know, I've had I've had some of our male advisors even on a niche talking about um, some of the things that they've done or taught or even just in conversation with them after they've heard it. And they want to they want to make sure to call me and tell me, no, 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 I have a lot of female clients. They really like me. And like, that's awesome. And that's great. And that's what we're trying to promote is that, I mean, really, the whole point and the reason we named it Unniched is just don't think of everybody the same, you know, just because you might be trying to appeal to women think about whether that mailer needs to be pink, you know, maybe not. Um, So, or, you know, if you, if you plan an event, does it have to be like, um, you know, making floral arrangements, which actually happened at an industry conference. So like, I think those (laughs) are the types of things just to rethink about, you know, are we placing some sort of emphasis on things strictly because of gender that might exclude us from having these really meaningful relationships with excellent clients, excellent advisors. Um, and I think and a lot of them, like I said, are unknowing. We don't even realize that they're there because um, you wouldn't really think about it. It's just, well, yeah, this is my retirement calculator, for example. Like, what's the big deal? Well, if you think about it, it might not be helping you be the best advisor you can be because you're missing something. Um And that just takes time. It's conversations between each person's situation and that advisor and how they relate. So I think the whole point was really just to be a place where we could start this conversation, um, see where we can evolve as an industry, and whatever little way I can to spotlight so many of the incredible, incredible women we have in this industry.
0: Gotcha. Well, the, the podcast is called Unnitched. everyone. Uh, I'm going to download it t- today and well, take thanks. a listen to your m- most recent one. Uh, I, I think it's, uh, uh, you know, it, it's always great to hear different voices and uh, uh, kind of get that a different perspective. So, um, Andrea, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast today. We learned uh, uh, so much. We kind of w- we went through a lot of stuff and I greatly appreciate your time.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for letting me talk about it and kind of go through what we do as compliance people every day.
0: All right, listeners, until next time, Market in Motion podcast, signing off. Thank you for listening to the Market in Motion podcast for financial advisors. If you found this episode informative, please share with your peers and colleagues. Visit fmgsuite.com to discover more great resources and products to transform you into an extraordinary marketer and grow your advisory.
1: Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox.